Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. This week we are continuing in our series just, just called Jesus. Um, and in this series we're looking at the life of Jesus. And we're looking at how Jesus encounters people. And how sometimes people encounter Jesus and they're they, they reject Jesus and what Jesus is about and what he has to offer. And then there's other places where Jesus encounters people and their lives are changed and they're transformed and they're renewed and they're made new again. And so this morning we're going to look at how Jesus encounters his disciples right after the resurrection. But before we get to there, I want to start with some, just some questions about, about learning and how we learn. And so as, as we're like little kids, how, how do we learn? Like what's the primary way that little kids learn? They're watching. Yeah, watching. Um, that, who are they watching? They're watching parents. They're watching, what else? What are they watching? They're watching everything. Yeah, if you know anything about kids, like kids are, they're sponges, right? They're watching everything. And the primary way that they learn is by having life imitated to them. They learn by imitation. And so right now, Elizabeth, our one-year-old, is just starting to enter in this like really cute phase of imitation. Like she's doing this like mimicking. So, and so Elizabeth's favorite toys are cars. And Elizabeth's favorite toys are cars because cars are Benjamin's favorite toys, right? And so Elizabeth will walk around and follow Benjamin pushing a little tractor around as he pushes the big tractor around. Benjamin will go, Broom, and Elizabeth will be going Broom, right behind her. Like, Elizabeth is mimicking. Benjamin plays trains. Elizabeth the other day was like, choo-choo. Like, she's, she's starting to, like, make the sound. She's, she's like, I know what's going on here. And the reason why she knows what's going on here is because Benjamin is showing her. Benjamin is like her person in her life. And she, whatever Benjamin's doing, Elizabeth wants to be there. Now, Benjamin, Benjamin's three, and he's learning, and he's learning how to imitate things too. And so there's, Benjamin loves to talk these days. So if you get a chance to talk to him, um, he'll talk your ear off. And uh, good luck understanding it sometimes. But because he's practicing smashing a bunch of words together, he he hears us say a word and he's like, "Where where does that word fit? Can I can I put it here in this sentence? Like, does it work? Like, he's experimenting, and sometimes we try and help guide him in the way that he talks, in the way that he acts, and the way he interacts with people by giving him the words to say. Like sometimes as people are walking out the door, we say. Um, Benjamin, say goodbye and have a good day. And so he's like, bye, have a good day. Um, the other day I was walking out the door. Elizabeth, Rebecca said, have a good day, Justin, drive safe. Benjamin said, bye, Dad, drive safe. You know, like he's in this place of modeling. We're modeling to our kids how we want them to speak, how we want them to react. We want them how to react in certain situations. And the way that we do that is we, we give them the words. And he repeats it back to us. The question is, is how, why do we imitate these things? Why do we imitate these things to our kids? Why do we show them what it is to apologize? Why do we show them what it is to say sorry? Why do we show them what it is to say goodbye and hello in like right ways? Well, I think we do it for two reasons. Um, if you want to throw it up on the screen, we do it, number one, so that they can truly live. Like we imitate to Benjamin and Elizabeth how to interact with people and how to speak to people and how to use the right tone with people because we know that if they grow in those things in the right way, that they will be able to truly live, that they'll be able to truly experience life and relationship in healthy and positive ways. And we want that for them. 
The second reason that we do it is so that they can live it out with others. Is so that they can go into a room and that they can change a room by the way that they act, by the words that they use, by the tones that they have. We're trying to teach them awareness of other people so that they can enter into a space and read people's emotions, see where people are at, and be able to care well with compassion and care so that they can actually enter into a space and through their presence change a space. That's our hope. That's our intent in parenting and trying to mimic to our, to our kids how to live life. We want them to be people that can go and make a difference to the world around them. And then we also want them so that someday when they have kids, to be able to give it to them. And the hope and the desire, I think, of every parent is that your kid would outpace you, that they would be able to do even more than what you have done. And so this is our hope. This is our hope. And the, the reality is that we can imitate and pass down information and learning to people around us in two ways. We can do it actively or we can do it passively. But in any case, the, the life and the patterns that we live will get imitated and passed down to the people that are around us. I was reading an article the other day that talked about uh, social class and how people get stuck in social classes and how people are stuck in social classes generally for generations. And the reason that is isn't because of like op lack of opportunity or, or a chance of opportunity. It's because of the life that's imitated to them. And so if you're, in a, if you're born in an upper-class family, you have a way of life that is upper-class. You are present to a number of conversations. You're present to a number of <laughs> of of strategies and ways of thinking, of viewing life, of viewing money, that equip you passively to continue into the upper class. Same thing if you're middle class, same thing if you're lower class, is that you have these patterns of life. Each class has a specific pattern that they pattern their life around, kind of rather passively, that then gets passed on to their kids, and their kids then pass that down to their kids. And that's one of the reasons why we get locked in. It's not the only reasons, but it's some of the reasons why people remain in the same socioeconomic class for generations. They find that the only way, that one, not the only way, but one of the primary ways that you're able to break socioeconomic class is by changing those rhythms intentionally. And so if you take Ben Carson, for example, I don't care if you like the guy or not, but the man grew up with a single mom. He was incredibly poor. The mom, his mom did not know how to read and she did not know how to write. And she lived in a world where the rhythms around her, if she left Ben to himself, if that was to be the thing, the primary thing that he learned from, would continue a life cycle of living in the lower class. But his mom wanted something different for Ben. He, she wanted something different. And so what she did is that she made a lifestyle change. And she began to model a different lifestyle to her son that would equip him to be able to learn how to read and write, not just on like a regular level, but on a high level. And so she'd make him do his homework, even though she couldn't read the homework. She'd have him read it back to him. She'd make him read extra books. She'd make him write book reports and then read those book reports to him. She changed the rhythm. She changed the patterns of the lifestyle around him, gave him a different one, and that equipped him to be able to eventually grow and become one of the best neuroscientists, one of the best neurosurgeons that we have in the world today. And it's all because she was intentional about changing the rhythms and the things that were going to be imitated to her son. Now, today isn't about changing socioeconomic class. 
But today is about discipleship. Today is about what is it that's in your life that's worth imitating. It's what are you sharing? What are the rhythms that you're sharing to the people around us? And so there's kind of three questions that I want to ask this morning. And the first one is, what are the rhythms in my life and what do they teach? What are the rhythms that I'm just practicing in my life and what do they teach? What do they model? The second question is, when we look at those rhythms, how do they align with the life and rhythm of Jesus? And then the third question is, is how am I inviting others to imitate the rhythms of Jesus through me? Because I think that's what Jesus is going to get at in the text today, is these three questions. So if you're a note taker, write those down, because I want you to take space this week and really dig in, make some observations, make some reflections. If you've got a phone, you want to take a picture of that, so that you can dive into that later, because this is where we're going this morning. What are the rhythms of your life? And what are they teaching? So this morning, the big chunk of passage that we're going to focus a lot of our time on is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. But I want to start in 28, verse 1, to just kind of give us some context of what's happening here. Because I think the, the passage that we're going to focus on is really famous, but we oftentimes kind of pull it out of its context and we forget what just happened around it. And so I want to start there. So 28, verse 1, it says this, Now the Sabbath... Towards the dawn of the first week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So Jesus has been crucified. He's been crucified. He's been dead for two days. Mary Mary Magdalene went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and the angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and he rolled back the stone, and he sat on it. An appearance of lightning was on his clothes, and his clothing was white as snow. And the fear of him and the guards trembled, and they became like dead men. And the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Then then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has been risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met up with them and said, Greetings! And they came upon him and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to the women, Do not be afraid, and go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. We're going to jump to verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. So the women came to the brothers, came to the disciples, and said, Hey, Jesus has been raised, he's alive, and he said, Go to Galilee. And so they respond, The eleven disciples go to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. I want you to imagine this scene. Jesus just got crucified by the hands of the Jews and the Roman government. You're one of his disciples. This guy was like your father figure. He was the leader of a movement, and he was your dear friend, and he's gone. The hopes of a coming kingdom that you were ready to pick up a sword and fight for a couple days ago are gone. You're afraid for your own life, 
that the Romans and the Jews might be coming after you next. And then you hear from some women who went to go visit the tomb that Jesus is alive. And he said that you should travel to Galilee and he's going to meet you there. Now, Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. Galilee was a region to the north. It meant that there was, there was a travel, there was a distance that they had to travel of uncertainty. And you've got to imagine that as they walked, they're like, is it real? Is it true? Like, what if they saw a ghost? What if it was their imagination? You know, you can just think of all the what ifs, but they go and they go in faith and they get there and there's Jesus and he's alive. And some fall down and worship him. I don't know if some of you guys caught this or not, but there's a line in there that's just incredibly fascinating, but it says, but some doubted. Some doubted. And we see in other places in the Gospels where Thomas, who's been labeled the doubting apostle, doubting Thomas, he doubted earlier when Jesus appeared, and Jesus is like, touch me. See, see that I'm real. See that it's here. Like, Jesus invites the doubt. And here we don't get names. We just say that some. So we know that's not just Thomas that doubts. But there's some people that are doubting. Like, is this real? Is, like, what's, what's going on here? And what I want you to see is that Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't rebuke the doubt. He doesn't look down on them in this moment and say, you of little faith. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, he, he says a phrase that takes the attention off of them and puts it on him, which is what happens when we doubt, right? When we doubt, we take the attention off of him and we put it on ourselves. Jesus removes the attention from them and puts it on himself. And he says this, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. He's making a statement about who he is and what he's up to and what he's here for. And then from that place, he says, therefore, because of this thing, because all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, I want you to go and make disciples. Not just where it's convenient, not just where you live your lives, but he says, but to the nations, to the world around you, I want you to go and make disciples to the world and when you do it, I don't want you to do it in your name, because that was the tradition back then, is that you'd get a rabbi, and that rabbi would make disciples in their name and be like, I'm a disciple of John, I'm a disciple of Jesus. And then that rabbi would then multiply his disciples, and they would become rabbis, and they would make their own disciples, and that's how that would work. But Jesus doesn't say, go and make disciples in your name. He says, go and make disciples in my name. He says, in my name. You're my disciples, and you're going to make disciples in my name, and when, when you make disciples, you're going to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you're going to teach them all that I have commanded you. What I want you to see here is that in this space, in the space of both worship and doubt, Jesus is declaring who he is, and he's declaring who they are, and he's giving them purpose. He's giving them identity and purpose. So the identity of the disciples is that they're incredibly loved by God and that they're sent by him. It's the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. That's their loved and sent people. That's their identity. Their purpose is to go and make disciples because of who Jesus is. Now the question is, and I think it's a question that happens in all churches, like, what's a disciple? What makes a disciple? How does Jesus make disciples? So, well, quite simply, the word disciple means to teach. 
And so the question then, if Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to make disciples of me and in my name, the question is, how does Jesus teach? How does Jesus teach his disciples? And when we look at the life of Jesus, the way that Jesus teaches is very interesting, especially to the Western world. Jesus doesn't make his disciples memorize a bunch of information. Never do you see, like, hey, memorize this. It's not there. He doesn't give them, like, reports to write. He doesn't say, hey, read Deuteronomy and write an exegesis paper on that. Tell me what you think. What's God doing there? Like, he doesn't do that. That's not how Jesus teaches. Instead, Jesus teaches them by giving him his life. He gives them his life. And he invites them into his life and he says, come, follow me. And in his life, he invites 12 guys to come and share his daily life and his daily rhythms of life for three years. Many of the guys are fishermen, which means that they're religious dropouts. One's an ex-tax collector, so he's the worst of persons. One is a militant zealot, so he would have wanted to kill the tax collector. Like, that would have been his job. Like, that's what he would have wanted to have happen. That's, and so Jesus brings these two dudes together, and they share life together for three years. I mean, only Jesus can do that, right? Amen. One guy is the son of a king, and all of them are from the region of Galilee, but one. And that's Judas, and he's from Judah. And Judah is the region where Jerusalem is. And Judah and the religious leaders of Judah are the ones who betray and kill Jesus. The disciples should have seen that one coming, right? Like, who doesn't belong? But that's what happens, that Jesus gives them his life. And he gives them a life that's worth imitating. And why did he give them his life? He gives them his life because he wants them to truly live. Number one, if we go back to the two points, Dave, you want to throw that up there? Number one, he wants them to truly live. He wants them to truly experience life as God intended it to live. And he wants them to surpass him. There's a spot where Jesus is like, you will do even greater things than me. And then the second reason is that he wants them to share his life and share the life that he's given them with others. He wants them to live it out. He wants them to go into a space and transform the spaces that they're in for God's kingdom and for their glory and for their joy. That's why Jesus gives them his life. And so the question then is, what, what is the things that Jesus gives them to imitate? What does Jesus' life look like? What does walking with three years with Jesus look like? And what we see is that there's three main patterns, three main rhythms over the three years that Jesus is with his disciples that he gives them. The first is time with the Father. The second is time together as a group of disciples. And then the third is a time out with the crowds. And we see this in Luke chapter 6. So in Luke 6, kind of happens all together. It says this. It says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and he continued to pray. And all night he continued to pray in prayer with God. And when day came, he called his disciples, and he chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. And he gives the list of the twelves. And then in verse 17 it says, And he came down with his disciples, stood on a level place, and there was a great crowd 
of his disciples and a great multitude of people with them from Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And those who came near to him were there to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him to heal them all. Jesus repeats this pattern over and over. We see him first praying all night with the Father. We see him then spend special time with his disciples, where of his disciples he appoints 12 to be the disciples, 12 to be the apostles. That would have been a special in time with those disciples. Then finally, he takes those disciples and they go out to the crowds, and Jesus has compassion on the crowds and he heals everybody. And these patterns repeat over and over where they, they repeat the prayer happens to God the Father all the time that where the disciples like wake up in the morning they're like, where's Jesus? And they know, oh, he's praying. And they still go and look for him. And this pattern repeats so often that the disciples one day just ask Jesus in Luke, hey, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? Would you teach us what it is to pray to the Father? And Jesus gives us what today is the Lord's Prayer to his disciples. We see Jesus walking with his disciples for three years. They walked everywhere. And I don't know if you've ever traveled with somebody. I love traveling with people because traveling is the space where I feel like I get to know people and where people get to know me. Anyone who has traveled with me knows that I like let down and have an amazing fun time whenever we get to travel. Um, so if you really want to know me, take me on a trip. I would love to go. All right. Um, but when you travel with people, you get to know them on a level that you just don't get to know in any other way. You get to know there's conflict, there's conflict resolution, there's planning, there's, but I wanted to go see this, but I wanted to go see that. There's, I want to do the most powerful, I want to be the most powerful, who's going to be the most powerful? Like there's all the stuff that, that just rises up, and Jesus is with them all for three years, living together, sleeping together, eating together, time together where Jesus is able to teach them, but he doesn't teach them through a class. He doesn't teach them through a curriculum. He teaches them with his life. And in his life, he then invites them to go heal the crowds. He, he first spends a lot of his early ministry just healing people and proclaiming the kingdom of God that is near. And then eventually he gets to a place to where he sends out his disciples. He's like, look, you go, you try. Let me know how it goes. And they're like, it worked. I mean, it works. We found one guy and it's not working. And Jesus is like, oh, it's because he didn't fast. Here, you know, do that. And he heals them. And they're like, oh, okay. Like Jesus models what it is to heal, what it is to pray, what it is to proclaim the kingdom of God and to go out into the crowds. And he does this over and over and over again. And so the way that we've contextualized this here at Damascus Road is we've put it into our vision statement. That is, follow Jesus, share life, and love our neighbor. This is what it is to be a disciple. And this is what we look to be. These are the patterns that we look to imitate and to follow as Jesus has put them into our lives. And so the question is, is what are the intentional, predictable patterns of imitating Jesus do you have in your life? What are the predictable patterns that you have in your life that imitate the life of Jesus in your life currently? And so is there time that you spend in prayer like Jesus? Is there time where you spend with God's people and share that faith with God's people and share life together where you can encourage and lift one another up? And then three, do you go out of your way to pray with people and to proclaim the kingdom of God is near? 
I think we have incredible opportunities in our workplace. I think the first two come easy because this is what church is about, right? Church primarily imitates to you. We, we like model this to you, worship and prayer, and we model to you shared life and community groups. Like we facilitate that stuff. The part that gets hard and the part that gets a little bit more nebulous and the part that gets a little bit more scary is when we go and we take it out into the world and we need to grow there and we're looking to grow there to where we can go into our office and where we can go into the places where we're in relationships and people are sharing hard things about their lives and we can just go as a person that has been following Jesus and we can just, with confidence, because we've seen Jesus do it, we've seen Jesus pray for people, we've seen Jesus <laughs> proclaim freedom over, over people, we can just go in that space and do it. We can say, hey, how can I pray for you over that? And just see what they say. See how their attitude changes. See how they let down. A couple weeks ago, I took a train ride to Michigan, and it was, I was looking to just decompress and put my headphones on and be done, right? You know, I don't know if you've ever taken a trip like that where you're just like, I want to close the world out. And there was a woman that sat next to me, and she needed to talk. And she finds out I'm a pastor, and we talked the whole way from Columbus to Chicago on the train. She's just pouring out her life sharing things that she hasn't told anyone, processing things that she hasn't really processed. We find out that she's going to be on the same train ride back that weekend in Chicago. I'm going to Michigan, but there's one train from Chicago to Columbus, and we're going to be on it again. And so we ride on the train back, and I just listen to her. I just listen to her. And I get, her, I get her information, and then the last couple of weeks, she kind of like told me her schedule and the major things that are happening in her life. And so I've just been texting her throughout the week. You know, hey, how's this going? Hey, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. Hey, how's this going? She's like, yeah, I met with a Lutheran pastor the other week and, and shared some of this stuff with him as well. And so it's just like the kingdom of God is growing in this woman. She's seeking freedom and she's seeking Jesus in the middle of this because I didn't put my headphones on because I just was like, hey, what's, like, what's going on? I can tell that you need to talk. This is what it looks like to share and to imitate going out. And I think in your workplaces, there are people that are broken. There are people that are living in fear. There are people that are living in anxiety. There are broken people everywhere. And Jesus is calling us to go and encounter them. And I think that one of the best ways that you can begin a, a conversation with is when somebody shares something devastating to you, is instead of saying, I'm really sorry, and walking away, you can say, how can I pray for you in that? And pray and ask, can I pray for you right now? And then follow up a couple days later. Hey, how's that thing going? I just want you to know I've been praying for you. And they're like, oh, man. You know, we live in a world where we think that people aren't religious. They might say they're not religious, but they are incredibly superstitious. Okay? And so if you tell them that God's a part of it, and they start seeing breakthrough in their lives, and that you're praying to the God who's the creator of the world, they might start to say, oh, wow. Change is happening. Maybe something is happening there. And when, when people share things that are good, you be, praise God. And that person's like, maybe. Maybe praise God. Yeah. There, there might be, you know, like the, we're talking about baby steps, but this is, this is what it is to start to enter into life to where you get to the place of proclaiming freedom and inviting them to know Jesus. Amen? Like this is what we want to do. This is where we want to go. For far too long, Following Jesus has been about knowing the right things or doing the right things. And I think that there's a middle way 
that we've forgotten. And that middle way is living in the freedom that he is giving us and offering that to other people. And so what I want you to see is that the life of Jesus is that he's never afraid. Jesus is never afraid. We've talked about these encounter stories where Jesus encounters demons, where Jesus encounters sick people. Jesus encounters all types of awkward, hairy situations that we'd be like, no thanks. But Jesus is never afraid. He walks in complete freedom from fear because he knows who he is. He knows that he's the son of God and he knows the authority that he possesses, that all authority in heaven and earth belongs in him. And so he doesn't run from those things. Instead, he calls those things out. And he calls you and I his brothers and sisters. I love the language in the text today. He tells the women to go tell the brothers to come find him. That's how he sees these guys. These guys are my brothers. We're his brothers and sisters. And he's like, and I want you to follow me. I want you to do the things that I do. When Jesus brought the disciples together, he believed in them. He believed that they could do what he does. That's the reason why Peter gets out of the boat when Jesus is walking on the water. Jesus is walking on the water. Peter's like, Jesus is doing it. I'll do it too. It's like Benjamin, my son. He's like, I see dad doing this. I'm going to follow. I'm going to do that. If dad can do it, I can do it. That's what's going on in the disciples' world. And so I want to ask you guys this morning, what is it? What is the freedom? What is the hope What is the joy? What is the peace that Jesus has put inside of you? Because you've had an encounter with Jesus. What is it that he has put inside of you that's worth sharing and inviting other people to imitate? That's a challenging question. What has God put inside of you that's worth giving to others? What has God put inside of you that's worth giving to others, because I believe that if the Spirit is living inside of you, He's given you a lot, far more than you imagine in this moment. And so I want you to pray this week God, show me what you've put in me that's worth giving to others, because He's in there and He wants to explode out of you towards others so that His kingdom can come breaking through. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this to the church in Corinthians He says, Be imitators of me as I am imitators of Christ. Paul understands that he's had an encounter with Jesus, that Jesus is putting stuff inside of him, so much so that he can say to other people, you should imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Paul understands that God is doing a work in him so he can share it with other people. And I want you to know that God is doing that same work in you. This is the heart of a commissioned disciple. This is what Jesus is doing in this space. He is commissioning his disciples to go. And so what I want you to hear this morning is the invitation from Jesus to come and imitate his life, to come follow him, to come know his heart for you and to know his heart for the world around you. When Jesus asks these guys to follow him, he believes in him. He believes in them, and that gives them the courage to do the crazy things that we do. I already talked about Peter jumping out of the boat, but he also sends them out two by two. And he says, guess what, guys? When you go two by two, don't take anything. And you're going out like sheep among the wolves. That's comforting, right? But he's like, go and do it. And they're like, our Jesus can do it, and so can we. And they go, and they do it. And not only does Jesus believe that they will do it, 
But he tells them that greater things are going to happen because the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them when he goes up to the Father. So here we are in the story. Jesus is resurrected. The disciples are there. They've shared life with Jesus for three years. And Jesus is commissioning them to go. He's commissioning them to go out into the world and to make disciples, not in your name, not to build your own kingdom, but to build his for his glory and our joy. In this scene that we find, it's the final words, it's the final scene of, of the book of Matthew. And what we find here in this commissioning, it kind of makes me think of the day when parents drop off kids to college, right? I don't know if you guys have lived that. Maybe you've lived that. Maybe you've been the kid that got dropped off to college. Maybe you're the, the parents that dropped kids off to college. Being a campus pastor and being a kid that went to college, I've seen this rhythm happen a number of times. The scene where parents are, are saying, son, daughter, I'm le- like, we're leaving. Like, go. Go, go do it. And there's, there's kind of four ways that this scene works out. And maybe you can think about it. But there's, there's, there's scene number one where you've got the kid that's really excited and you've got the parents that are really sad. You've got the kids that's like, freedom! And you've got the parents that are like, dear God, I hope they make it. Scene number two is you've got the mourning kid. The kid's like, don't leave me, mom and dad. And the parents are like, see ya! We already bought the paint. <laughs> then you have the scene where like everyone's a mess. Kids are like, don't leave. Parents are like, we don't want you to leave. Parents are like, come home. Yes, I want to come home. Like, you, you have that that happens as well. Okay? But then there's a scene where the kid is excited, and they're confident, and they're equipped, and the parents are excited, and they're at peace. And I think that this one, is the one that commissioning looks like. The kid's at peace because the parents have invested in them, and the kid knows who they are. They know whose they are. They know how they're going to respond in different situations, and it's because their parents have prepared them for that moment. And the parents can stand with their kid, and they can be excited with them because they're like, we are excited for what you're going to learn, grow, and who you're going to become, and how you're going to grow from this base place of knowing your identity in Jesus, of knowing your identity in this family, of knowing how God's wired you and where he wants to take you. And it's a place of celebration, it's a place of peace, and it's a place of great joy. And that's what's happening with Jesus and the disciples right here, is he's saying, look guys, I've put it in you. I spent three years with you, you've got it, we've done it, go do it. And they do. They do. And I want to ask the question this morning is, what would it look like for us to begin to shift our thinking into seeing ourselves as commissioned people? To go wherever God is sending us. What would it look like to go into work with a greater purpose and a greater calling than the work that's in front of you? In the opinion of your boss or the performance of your work. Like, what if work wasn't just about your boss's opinion and the work you got done, but it was about bringing the kingdom of God to rule and reign over that space and for that space to be transformed by Jesus and his presence and to see the broken lives of the people that you work with be transformed? Like, what if you were a commissioned person to go change a space because Jesus has called you to that and he's equipped you to go do that and you step into that space with faithfulness? How would that change the way that you wake up in the morning and put your shoes on? And go to work. What would it look like if you see your family as a commissioned people to your neighborhood? How would that change the way you view your house, 
What if your house just wasn't a place where you just like pulled in the garage and shut the door and pulled out of the garage and shut the door and watched Netflix in, right? Like what if it was more than just sleeping in Netflix? What if your house is a place of, that could be a hub of community for your neighbors and the families around you and that you could invite them in and you could share food and you could share space and you could share stories and you could share brokenness and you'd allow space for the kingdom of God to break through there? And finally, what would it look like for your kids to see themselves as commissioned to school? Well, they were equipped with the confidence of the gospel so that they didn't have to go to school with fear around their friends, around their teachers, around the schoolwork. But they could go into that place with confidence, knowing who they are and whose they are and who God's called them to be. So that they could go in instead of being transformed by the space, because that's the fear, right? Send them to school and school's going to wreck them. What if you sent them to school and they wrecked the school? Like, what if they were commissioned? What if they were sent? What if they knew who they were and that they could change the lives of the students and the teachers and the people around them? That's what Jesus is doing in this space. He's saying, follow me, imitate me, go with me and be a person that can transform the space around you. When he commissions them out, he's saying, I've given you my life and I've given you my life so that you can live and so that you can go share it with others. And these 11 guys change the world. They do it. They do it through his spirit and they threw, do it through his power and his authority. Now I want you to see how Matthew ends his book. This is the last scene that we get from Jesus. There is no ascension scene. This is it. This is how Matthew says the gospel, the good news of Jesus, ends right here, and it begins right here. It begins right here with this commissioning of his disciples to go out, and it ends with a promise. It ends with a promise, and this is what the promise says. It says, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I want you to see how Matthew begins. Matthew begins with the birth of Jesus. And it begins with the naming of Jesus. And it's in the book of Matthew that Jesus is given the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. For Matthew, the story ends where it begins. And that's with God with us. And so Jesus, who lived three years with his disciple, lives today and breathes through you and me, through his spirit, today. The church is still active, the church is still growing, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the good news that we have today, is that this commissioning isn't just for the disciples. This commissioning isn't just for a time 2,000 years ago. Following Jesus and imitating his life wasn't just for his disciples then, but there's an invitation to know him and to grow into the rhythms of his kingdom today. And that's what he's inviting you to. He's inviting you to know him and to know the freedom that he gives so that you can step out into any situation into this life without fear because all authority and power has been given to him. Amen. I'm going to enter into a time of reflection and prayer and um, in communion. We're going to celebrate what God has done through his son, through the way that he was crucified, and the way that he was buried, the way that he gave his life, not only for the forgiveness of our sins, but so that we might also truly live and share that and give that life to others. Amen. That is the heart of the gospel. 
And it is the heart of the Great Commission with us this morning. Would you guys pray with me? Dear God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time that we have together to worship. We thank you for this time to open up your word and to be encouraged by the commissioning and the sending of your disciples. And God, we thank you for the ways that you gave them predictable patterns and rhythms to to form their life around. And God, I pray that you would give us your freedom, that we would not feel any shame, that we would not feel any fear, that we would not feel any anger, but God, that we would just be drawn to you and your grace and your presence to live a life modeled after yours. God, lead us by your grace and your love this week. Amen.